All right. Well, welcome back, and uh, come on back and turn to the uh, 15th chapter, 15th chapter of uh, the book of Luke. As we continue through the book of uh, Luke, and uh, God has been really blessing our time, I think, uh, uh, isn't it good to kind of get that whole counsel, just go through the whole book and see kind of how it fits together and all those sorts of things. So, uh, good stuff. We uh, are examining the gospel, the universal gospel, the one that uh, tells us and stresses, all of them do, but this one stresses that everybody's welcome in Christ, everybody. There's no distinction for any of us in Christ. If you think uh, you're better than someone or lesser than someone, see, in Christ we're equal. Uh, there's nobody that lives on that side of the tracks or this side of the tracks. We have the very life of Christ pulsing in and out of us. And so in Christ, we're all brothers and sisters. And uh, this doctor, this physician, Luke, is uh, stressing uh, that very point. He tells us in the 19th chapter, we're in the 15th chapter, kind of the, um, kind of the uh, theme or summary of the whole book. You ready? You could summarize the whole book. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the ministry of Jesus Christ, right? So when you think that, have you ever, have you ever thought this to yourself? We'll explore it today. What does it mean to be lost? Ever thought about that? The Bible really doesn't speak of being saved or unsaved. The Bible really speaks about being lost or found. Isn't that interesting? And today uh, we'll uh, take a look at that. Now remember, uh, this is kind of the end of Jesus' ministry as he's marching towards the cross. He's coming from north to south there in uh, the land of Israel. And he's on uh, the other side of the Jordan in a place called Perea. This is the final three months or so before he starts to march up to Jerusalem uh, to his death. And he has been really delivering lots of amazing truths, and especially to those people who are, quote-unquote, ready? Religious. And what's interesting about it is, He's doing these parables or saying these parables or talking these teachings. Catch this. Don't miss this. He's giving these parables and teaching, and he's directing them to the Pharisees, the legalists, the ones who are self-righteous. Catch this. And it's going over their head because what they think is, well, of course, he must be talking to the commoners. When in fact, he's really directing many of these teachings to the self-righteous people who are church people. Wow. And last week, they, he, he again talked about healing on the Sabbath and why it's so sick and twisted and perverse in one way to think man-made traditions trump helping people or healing people on the Sabbath. It's a theme that he's come back to several times. And then he talked to us about this principle about being humble and taking the lowly place and you'll be exalted. In his example, he took the lowliest of all places. He went to death on a cross and was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he's the first fruit, which means there's more fruit coming and you and I and we in Christ are those fruits. And then he talked about this parable of the Great Supper where he invited many, but the people he invited didn't come, so he went out again and invited some others. And I want you to catch this. I don't want you to forget this today, and I don't want to forget it. Where did he tell the, 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 the servants who were making the invite after the, the first invite it had been declined, so to speak? It wasn't really the first invite, but... The first people who were invited declined. Where did he tell them to go? He told them to go out into the streets, into the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. 
He said, go out into the highways and byways of life and give invitations to come to the great marriage feast or the supper. The supper, which is the great marriage feast there. That's a better way of saying it. And then he says later, go out into the highways and the hedges. Go find people. You see, our mission isn't to get people in here. Yes, we want people in here. Yes, we want to teach the word. Yes, we want to encourage one another and sharpen one another. But we want the church to go there. The church shouldn't be sitting in here like a mausoleum. (laughs) Just in here being a club with our cool stuff and our coffee shops and just hanging here. Yes, let's come here and get refreshed, but let's go out there and seek and save in the sense that we share the gospel. And then, of course, the Lord does the saving. But out there in life. So are we sharing the gospel wherever we go? Are we making disciples wherever we go on our way? And it talks about this hard thing where it's leaving all to follow Christ. And that struck a chord with lots of us, didn't it? You've, many of you have asked for some of the quotes we gave, talked about how radical it is to forsake all to follow Christ. And now he's just given this message and said, hey man, if salt loses its saltiness, throw it out. We don't want to lose our saltiness. We don't want to be useless, do we? We want to be useful, full of use. And then he says this, kind of unfortunate, that the chapter breaks here. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what Jesus says because he's going into the next topic. And what that means and what that says is this. Keep on, keep on listening. Keep listening. Don't just hear it once and let it go. Keep listening to this. And so here it is. Verse 1, chapter 15. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained or murmured in the, New, or the King James, I think, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable, circle that. Some people believe this is three parables here, the very famous chapter of the Bible. You're going to know this. But maybe, could it be, it's just one continuous parable with three different aspects to the story? I think so. He spoke this parable to them saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found, look at this, my sheep, which was lost. I say to you that likewise, likewise, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So pray with me, would you? Lord, thanks for this morning and for these words. (laughs) Lord, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us to understand and to know and to set forth here your glories, Lord, so that we could come and feast and go out there and share. (laughs) In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You ever lost something that you loved? You ever lost something you loved? Yeah, I lost my watch in my pillowcase the other night, and I couldn't find it. I had to text, had Livia text me over and over so I could just kind of hear it beeping. How it got off my wrist and into my pillowcase, I have no idea. But that's where it was, and it took me a while to find it. But you you ever lost something you know you just really loved? One time I lost my phone in my golf bag. It stayed there for two years, and we found it two years later. (laughs) I know it's Pastor's Wives Appreciation Day, but one time my wife lost my daughter at a mall just for a split second. (laughs) You ever had that happen to you? You ever been at the, the, like, the playground 
And you know, you're just chatting up a storm, the friend is there, and the kids are right in front of you, and everything's great, and, and you know, you just kind of turn your head and talk to her or him for a few seconds, and you turn around, and that little one is gone. What happens? Your heart drops. You're sick for that split second where you can't find them, right? You're, 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 you're sad and you're scared and you're angry at yourself or whatever. And you're, you know, the panic is just instantly setting in. You, where did they or she or he go? But, but think of it how you feel, even for that split second, when you find them. Just the relief and the stress and the tension just dissipates, doesn't it? And you're just so happy to see them. You just hug and, you know, whatever, give them kisses and, oh, the relief that those have been found. Well, that's sort of what we're talking about today. Here, Jesus has given this call to be not self-righteous, but to be impacted in here, inside, in your hearts. He's given this call to take a lowly place and invite people, even on the periphery of life, into the uh, supper, and then tells you that as I've chosen you, your call is to live a radical life of discipleship in which you're going to unloosen your grip on all material possessions and relationships, by the way, and he's going to have an unshared place in your heart of love. That's what loving him is all about. And then he says, I don't want you to lose your salt ever. And now hear what you need to hear. And he says this, all the tax collectors, or the writer says this, all the tax collectors and the sinners, listen to this, drew near to him. They were attracted to this. Think about that. Why is it say that sinners, which means missed the mark or fell below the standard of God, the sinners drew near to him to hear him? Why do you think that is? Because somebody who knows that they're a sinner sees their need for Jesus. We, we have a culture of Christianity that doesn't preach about sin. Do you know this? There's people that won't tell you that sin is sin. They just want you to come to the church and give in the box and play their awesome videos and get their, you know, whatever. And so, <laughs> because they want people to come in the church so they can be a bigger group. And so they're afraid sometimes to tell us that we're sinners. But see, Jesus wasn't afraid of that. He was always perfectly gracious and loving. Just watch how he handles the woman at the well who had had all those husbands and was getting ready to marry another one. He befriended her and came and talked with her and marched to her and was with her in the sense of friendship. And, and yet he said, go and sin no more. I mean, he didn't leave the truth out either, but there was this perfect blend of grace and truth Jesus never compromised either, and he's calling you by the Holy Spirit uh, to do the same. But see, people won't be drawn to Jesus really unless they know the bad news first. The bad news is all of us, like sheep, all of us, I'm using this from Isaiah 53, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray and gone our own way. We all are fickle in here. We're all sinners in here. We're all prone to wander from the Lord and to dip below his standard. We're sinners, and they knew it, but that drew them to Jesus. See, a lot of people who are sinners are repelled by, quote-unquote, Christians today. Why? Because they're more like the Pharisees than they are Jesus. Look here, and the Pharisees and the scribes complained they were more interested in pulling an oxen out of a hole in the ground than they were ministering to people who had sin issues, however gross that looks. But we're all sinners, and the Pharisees and the scribes, who are they? They're that religious sect that strictly followed the first five books of the Bible and then made lots of oral traditions and even written traditions that they compiled in books on how to live the law, and they became more interested in interpreting and seeing how it is we should live the law than to do justice and mercy and love. 
And Jesus railed against it, and that's who these people are. And they keep trying to trip him up, and they keep trying to catch him in something. By the way, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me in the book of John. I lay it down willingly of my own accord. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what Jesus said. Jesus was on his own own timetable, but what's interesting is here is sinners were attracted, even though Jesus told the truth. Religious people, self-righteous people, are angry that sinners are coming to Jesus. You know, in their early history of the Calvary Chapel movement, it happened a lot in the beaches of South Carolina and a lot of the hippie culture. And the pastor who started Calvary Chapel, and he and his wife, they started having hippies come to the church. And the hippies at that time had a big aversion to shoes. (laughs) They didn't like to wear shoes. And the wife of the pastor had been praying that somehow, someway, Lord, we reach the hippies. And so some people were coming in and sitting with no shoes on, and that really fired up the self-righteous people. <laughs> and they started to ask the pastor and his wife, what should we do? We're the ushers. Should we you know, get them out? And they're like, no, we've been praying for this. And so they just were come as you are and hear about Jesus. And the Lord really blessed that. Here, the Pharisees and the scribe complain and said, this man receives sinners, but here's the double whammy. Not only does he receive sinners, but he eats with them. Let me tell you why it's a double whammy. See, Pharisees wanted to approach God based on their own efforts. I keep the law. I'm great at it. You're not as great as I am. And if you're not one who participates in the law and its oral traditions, well, then you're just a person of the land. That's what they called them, just a person of the land. Listen to what they would pray. They wouldn't say there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, but they prayed and said, no, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. They were looking. Why do you think it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it's the gift of God, salvation, listen, lest any man would boast. Because if we get into this place where we approach God based on how great we do, we're always going to be boasting people because you're going to say, well, I was at more Bible studies than you were, and I gave more money than you did. And so Jesus was talking about this and was uh, into this and was ministering against this. But these people said, wait a minute, you receive sinners? We should separate ourselves from sinners. We want them to see them obliterated because they don't follow the law like we do. We're boasting. You get it? But then here's the double whammy. Here's the double whammy. This sinner thing, they felt like they were being contaminated, but the eating part was outrageous to them. Do you know why? Because, see, they would dip, and they would ingest the food, and they felt like if we ate together, we bonded because the same food in those dishes were going into me and to you, and so we're bonding in that way. There's no way a self-righteous person at that time would eat with someone who was a person of the land. You get that? This is outrageous stuff. You guys, we don't, we don't understand it as much because we didn't live in that culture, but he spoke to sinners, and actually ate with them. And this fired up these Pharisees and the scribes. So he knew instantly, didn't he? Gosh, just so perfect. He spoke a parable to them. (laughs) A parable. What's a parable? A parable is a spiritual story with a truth that, or excuse me, that's laid aside the truth, a spiritual truth, so it'll highlight spiritual truth. Get it? Something that you can uh, uh, know about so you can resonate with and remember the spiritual truth. So here it is. He says, what man of you have a hundred sheep? Now, here he goes again. (laughs) See, shepherds, people who had sheep, were low in the socioeconomic status. They had a stinky job that they felt It did take uh, uh, some 
some uh, you know, skill, but they felt didn't take much skill, didn't take much thinking, listen to this, and uh, think again what they would have to do. They'd have to work seven days a week, which meant what? They wouldn't recognize the Sabbath, so to speak. So, a shepherd? You're telling me a story of a shepherd? See what self-righteous people do? They're not teachable. You're telling me the story of a shepherd, and they would kind of shut down maybe a little bit. But he's doing this on purpose. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, I want you to catch something. In my Bible, there in verse 4, I highlighted loses. Then I highlighted finds in verse 4. And then in verse 5, I highlighted rejoicing. That's the theme of this chapter. Losing, finding, rejoicing. When a man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, a shepherd doesn't leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one in which he is lost until he finds it. They do this. And when he has found it, what does he do? He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. You know that feeling you have when you lose your kid at the playground? Well, this is way better. And you find them. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found, look at this, my sheep, which was lost. Let's talk about this a little bit. You know, when you first read this, who gets bothered by it? Come on, man. You're like, wait a minute, there's a hundred? Let the one go. I mean, we're, we're, we're uh, putting the, the, uh, the group at risk here, folks. But see, you really weren't. If you knew, uh, there's some indications in the Old Testament that if somebody lost the property of another, they would have to reimburse them for it. You get that? And so this shepherd is responsible for all the sheep, not just a hundred. See, that tells you an amazing truth about the Lord as we set forth the glories of God here. Is that Jesus, or, or excuse me, God did love the world that he sent his son Jesus. He loved the world. I read that when I first read this stuff, the Bible, and said, well, you know, okay, he loves the world kind of like a blob. He just loves the world, all three billion of us, kind of blobby like that. But he loves each one individually, folks. That's something that people here need to hear. Because they think of God like just loving kind of in a mass. God loves individually. He loves individually. He'll go after the one. See, the 99 weren't in danger because shepherds often in this culture had communal shep, uh, sheep. So if this, uh, if this guy owned a hundred sheep, he'd get together with two or three other shepherds and they'd share. And so likely what he did is he just gave over his 99 to those communal shepherds because they lived on a strip of land in Jerusalem that's, you know, very long and very high up on a mountain. Jerusalem is. It's up there. And so Back in these times, it was dangerous for them to wander off. They might fall off the cliff. They might run into a bobcat or whatever they had, bear or whatever they had at the time. There was a lot of reasons to protect. But here he's leaving. He's not leaving this one, uh, just these 99, excuse me, out with no protection. He's probably leaving them in the hands of another shepherd. He's also got to do it because he's responsible to at least figure out why uh, this one's got away, especially if it's a sheep from one of the, the other communities. You see that? He has to find out if it's alive or dead, and of course he cares for it. A good shepherd, Jesus tells us in John 10, is not a hireling. He doesn't just do it for the money. He loves the sheep. Well, let's talk about sheep. Stupid are they. Prone to wander are they. Forget where they're going, they do. Forget where they've been. Forget how to get back. They're not like dogs that have this sense about how to get home or whatever. These sheep are dumb and stupid and wayward and stubborn, and the shepherd loves them. And I got bad news for you. In God's economy, we're the sheep. But I also got good news for you. Because if you've wandered off, or if you go astray, or if you feel alone, or if you feel lost, 
Jesus pursues us. The shepherd pursues us. Do you know this? Just turn over to John chapter 10. Go over to uh, verse 13. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. But Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. You see that? And am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I must also bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Then jump down to 25. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you're not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You know, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about how the shepherds, the human shepherds, like the priests and the people who were in charge spiritually of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, have gone rogue, just gone off the rails, just weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And then Jesus, or excuse me, and then God in Ezekiel describes how he'll be a shepherd and find the people and bring them into the fold. So now when you come back, you say, what man of you, in verse 4 of Luke chapter 15, if he loses one of them, your first, I think, at least mine is, my first reaction is, what about the 99? Well, the 99 are safe and secure, so he goes pursuing the one. And he does. And he goes after them, and he's lost until he finds it. He goes after the one which is lost until he finds it, and he finds. And when he has found it, he yells at it, and he criticizes them and tells them how stupid they are for leaving. No, he doesn't do that. He puts it around his shoulders, and he holds on to their legs so they won't go away. And he rejoices. See, that's religious people don't rejoice. They think they can't be in the company of somebody who's a sinner because it might contaminate them. And yet, the Bible calls us to go out into the highways and byways of life. What's the rule? Some people say, should I minister in a bar? Should I minister at the beach? Well, I don't know. Here's the rule. If you are being contaminated by the world where you minister, maybe it's time to pull back and mature a little bit till you go back out again. But if you are mature enough or walking enough to go to the bar or to the beach or wherever it is and minister without losing your witness, do it. That's what Jesus did. He never lost his witness. And here he finds these and he puts him around his neck, and he rejoices. A sinner has come home. And when he comes home, he calls together, I want you to notice this, his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. I want you to see how joyful it is, the spiritual life. Do you know how much joy the stupid sheep must feel to have been found Catch, listen to what I'm saying. He was out there probably, or she, the, the sheep was out there, wallowing in the hills, afraid of the cliffs, listening to the growls at them and scared and didn't know where he was. It sounds like people in life. It actually sounds like the book of Ecclesiastes. I've tried everything. I tried this. I tried that. And I don't even now know where to go. I'm so scared and lost. That's the message of people in the world right now. And Jesus finds them, and it feels so good to be found rejoicing. But not only is he rejoicing, he, re he comes home and he calls together his friends and neighbors, and they rejoice. Are you catching that? Let me read you something. 
This is a commentary by William Barclay. He's talking about the shepherds in Judea. The shepherd in Judea had a hard and dangerous task. Pasture was scarce. There was a narrow, narrow central plateau that was only a few miles wide, and it plunged down to the wild cliffs and the terrible devastation of the desert. There were no restraining walls, and the sheep would wander. And a man named George Adam Smith, I think he's a Scottish pastor, I think that, wrote of the shepherd. Listen to this. On some high moor, M-O-O-R, across which at night the hyenas howl, when you meet him, sleepless, that is the shepherd, far-sighted, weather-beaten, armed, leaning on his staff and looking out over his scattered sheep, every one of them are on his heart. You understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front in his people's history, why they gave his name to the king and made him the symbol of providence, why Christ took him as the type of self-sacrifice. In fact, before you all and we all wore crosses around our neck, the symbol of the Christian life, along with that fish, was the shepherd carrying the sheep. He said and identified with the sheep. He was personally responsible for the sheep. If a sheep was lost, the shepherd must at least bring home the fleece to show that it died. And what they did was... All the people in the village, as the shepherd is walking back, remember, there's communal shepherds, so the other shepherds would have informed the village. The other people would be watching and waiting to see that sheep and the shepherd with him come back, and they would celebrate as a, as a village. Now, what am I telling you all that? See, because there's something about repentance and salvation that's healthy for the whole village. We should be a sharing church, folks. Don't keep your Christianity to yourself. If you were in a, a, a spiritual court and someone convicted you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to proceed with the case? Would other t witnesses be saying, well, Oh, yeah, they love sports, or they love music, or they love literature, or they love movies, they love Netflix. Or would they say, oh, my goodness, that person knew that they'd been found and wanted others to be found too. Here, there's something healthy about all of the friends rejoicing over salvation. And I appreciate you as you come here and pray after church. Many of the prayers are for um, friends and family who don't know the Lord in a personal and saving way. Well, he says, I say to you that likewise there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. You say, what does that mean? Doesn't that kind of confuse you a little bit? Well, don't be confused. What does it mean one sinner who repents over 99 just persons who need no repentance? Could be two answers. Maybe the 99 were already saved. That's one answer. I'm not so sure that's it. Here's what I think it is. And I don't want you to let this go by. Write it down. Remember it. He's witnessing and sharing to the self-righteous religious people who think they have a relationship with God. And they feel that they're just. And yet... They don't recognize any re need for repentance. Are you seeing it? It describes almost the whole entirety of church in America. How sad, right? The Lord, the heavens, the angels are jumping up for joy. There's a big party in heaven when just one sinner repents and comes to know the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Let's all participate in that. How about this? Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, circle the word, word loses, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner, sinner who repents. Well, what's this about? Did you notice that... In the first example, one was uh, 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 wayward. They, they walked away from the Lord. 
right? They got away from the fold, but this one is just some, it's been lost. Something's been lost. You catch that? It's been more of carelessness than it has been in a lack of diligence or lack of paying attention. You get that? And here it's just losing one coin, woman having 10 silver coins. Now, this will make more sense if you know maybe what they're talking about here. Two schools of thought here about the coins. One is that the word for coin there equals about a day's wage. So, of course, this is valuable. They're losing one-seventh of their weekly income, and the woman having 10 silver coins, what she does is she lights a lamp because in the homes in this area, they had one maybe window area in the front of the house about 18 inches big, so there wasn't a lot of light there. And remember, they didn't have, uh, you know, uh, laminated floors. What they had was a dirt floor pressed down, and they would put bushes or leaves not bushes, but leaves and plants down there, reeds. And so if a coin fell on the floor, it's gone. And this is a panic mode, right? My goodness, one-seventh of my income. Or here's another thought about these coins, 10 silver coins. She loses one. Some people believe and some say and refer to the headdress that a married woman would wear in Israel. And what it had was a a kind of a necklace that attached 10 coins. And it was sort of a way of saying, hey, I'm married, like the wedding ring. And it also said, I'm valued by my husband. So she was in panic mode if one of these fell out, right? Because her marriage ring or her wedding ring was lost. Anybody lost a wedding ring or a ring in the ocean? Oh, Jan's done that. Okay. (laughs) Right, if you lost a wedding ring. So that's kind of what this is. So there's 10. She sweeps the house. She turns on a lamp. Some people believe this is a picture of the Holy Spirit searching after the one until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends. Here it is again, the same pattern. She calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me for I found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one who repents. Oh my. There's there's rejoicing in heaven over one who repents. Now let's talk about this. What does it mean to be lost? This is a parable, obviously, right? This is a parable, and obviously uh, the, the shepherd is Jesus. I took you to John chapter 10. We're the sheep, sorry, (laughs) but we are. We've wandered off. We've gone our own way. Jesus wants to bring us back into the fold. That's us. Well, we're a coin. We could be a coin. We have the image of God stamped on us, and somehow we get lost. And the Holy Spirit then comes and draws us to him, and we're found. And it's joyful to be found. What a blessing to know that the Lord is hunted after you and you're found by Him. What a blessing that is. That's the message for us as adults, but also the message for young people. You think young people aren't struggling with knowing who they are? Well, here's the answer. You're His. And that's a beautiful thing. It has all the ramifications. It takes out anxiety. It takes out knowing where your place is in the world. It takes out your, knowing what your purpose I know your purpose. You know your purpose. Just read this. Your purpose is to be with him and to enjoy him and glorify him. What a beautiful purpose. But now he gives you more purpose. He gives you the last parable, the most famous one. He said, oh, I didn't finish about what was lost. Think about this. What what does being lost mean? Well, back in Luke 13.3, Jesus said, used the word, those who don't believe in him will perish The word for perish and lost is the same word. In other words, it talks about being separated from God. You're lost because you're going to be separated from God forever. That's what lost is. And you could keep going. I mean, think about what lost means. It means you found yourself in the wrong place. Get it. You're not where you're supposed to be. Anybody ever felt like that in life? You're not where you're supposed to be, and you don't even know how you got there, and you're sort of afraid because you don't even know how to get back. 
and you're just tumbling like in a washing machine or a dryer like of life. I'm out of place. What else does being lost mean? It means being separated from God forever. It means while you're here, you're out of place. And check this out. You're also out of service. The sheep couldn't be used for the intended purpose that they were needed to be used for. The coin couldn't be used for its intended purpose. You were totally out of service. You weren't being used. You were useless. And, and the Bible says, one great message of the Bible is you are to be useful. Let me read you something. Go over to Ephesians chapter 2. You want to hear about serious seriously being lost, go over to Ephesians chapter 2 and read with me. You want to know how lost we are are without Christ? Look at this. uh, Well, I'm going to actually read you uh, verse 1, and then I'm going to skip over to verse 12. Look, look look how lost we are, and you he made alive. Okay, that's not lost, that's found. But look, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked into the, according to the course of this world, according to the prince or the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You're disobedient. You're lost. You're out of use. Among them who also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature, listen to this, children of wrath, just as the others. Skip over to verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel or the people of God, and you were strangers from the covenants of promise, and you had no hope. (laughs) You know what it is to live with no hope? Oh my goodness, it's devastating. And you were without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You're found, and you come into a fellowship with the Lord. You see it? You were lost. And here, this finding. Then he said in verse 11 of chapter 15, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Hey, father, hey, dad, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. What's going on here? Well, in Deuteronomy, there's a suggestion that, listen, the older brother would get two-thirds. Those two are out. (laughs) No. No, the older brother would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and there's some indication in the Old Testament that it was okay to give the money before the dad died. But you know, it's kind of crass to ask for it, right? And here this kid says, give me, dad. In other words, it's like you're dead. Just give me the money. (laughs) That's what this kid is saying. And the younger of them said to the father, hey, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them to his livelihood. And not many days after, of course this was going to happen, right? This one who said, give me, give me, give me. No concern or care for the father. What happens to him? No concern, no care. I just want the gifts. The younger son gathered all together, journeying to a far country. Now, what country is it? I don't know. But a lot of people come to church and their hearts are in a far country. Just because they're in here doesn't mean their hearts aren't away. They want the gifts. Lord, bless me with that job this week or I'm never following you again. Now, they don't say never following you again, but that's what they mean. If you don't fix my health right now, I'm mad at you. If you don't give me that relationship that I'm praying for three seconds ago, we're done. That's how we do it. What are we saying? We're just like this young kid, this punk, who says to the father, give me. And when the father just lets the natural course of that takes its place, of course he does what he, he's going to do. Look what he does. He goes to that far country and he wastes everything with prodigal living. What's it mean? What's prodigal living mean? It just means wasteful. Spend it all. Wasteful. I got a little time out. Because this doesn't exactly go with the teaching, but yet it does. 
What a message for parents. I, I got news for you. We live in a fallen world. And I, I don't know if you've known this, but life ain't fair, folks. The Bible addresses it. Why do the wicked prosper and we don't? Life ain't fair. And if we as parents run around and fix everything for the kid, they're never going to learn this lesson. Never. You see, painful circumstances here, painful, painful circumstances. Can you imagine as a dad knowing if you give the money over, they're going to run? And yet they want it. They want it. They have to have it. They want it. Painful circumstances here are the only way that help this kid. And sometimes we as parents, we just got to let him run the course and let him fail. It's okay. Failure is okay. Just ask Abraham Lincoln. He failed in everything until he became the president. Sometimes it's just okay. But see, here's what we are as parents. We put the kids in the center of the universe so we fix everything for them. And they never have to learn and deal with adversity because I don't have news for you. Almost all of life is lived in unfairness. It will only be put fair when he comes back. So how are Christians going to live in unfairness if we run around and pick up after everything our kid does? We have to let him fail. Sometimes. Here, he says, here, take the money, okay? It was the best thing for him. He would never learn this. He would go on his whole life being dependent upon the dad. The dad said, you got to come to the end of your rope. Here, take the money. How patient and how loving. When you don't know what to do for your kids, let the circumstances take their course and then do this. Pray and fast and pray and love and pray and fast and let them, he or her, fail. If they didn't ever do this, this young son would have never come back to the father. Is that a hard lesson to learn? Now you go back and you go, then he went and joined himself to citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. See, sin is so deceptive, folks. You and I think it's freeing when we're outside of Christ. We think, well, we just do what we want to do. We don't want any rules. But John tells us that when we sin, we become a slave to sin. And here, I don't know if you know this, but the very thing in which the kid, the young guy, didn't want to do work, he goes into the far country, grass is greener on the other side, just give me my money, Dad, I'll go party it up and live, it'll be awesome, look what happens. He becomes enslaved or he has to work in the far country. He didn't want to work at first, now he's working because he's spent all of his money, he's wasted it, he's joined himself to a citizen of that country, and his dad has all the good food and all the provision for him, but he's now eating pods that they feed to swine, eating these seeds that he feeds in the pig pen. They set out in the pig pen. Can you imagine that? We think sin is so amazing, and yet sin, their pleasures are fleeting. That's what Hebrews 11.25 says. It's great for a time, but you'll spend it all, and you'll be enslaved in the process. Sin will find you out, folks. Numbers. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So now watch. Watch this. Here's the picture of repentance. Repentance. They're using these words, repentance, that means change your mind, metanao. I don't know if I'm saying it right. He says, I've sinned, or excuse me, I, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger, Watch this, circle it. I will arise, go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 
verse 10. Go over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you will. See it with your own eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, sorry. Uh, Therefore, having these promises, uh, I'm going to actually read you 1 and verse 10. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You got that one? 2 Corinthians 7, 1, and then go over to verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That gives you a key into the kind of repentance that you're supposed to have. Ready? It ain't just feeling sorry about what you did. That's not repentance. Write that down. (laughs) Because most of what we see in church is feeling sorry about what you did. That's not repentance. I just read it to you. That kind of repentance leads to death. But there must be a changing of the mind. And I said, will, will, will. I wanted you to circle it. It's also your mind, your will, your emotions. Everything that you are is changing its course and moving towards God. You will now. You give your will over to the Lord. You're not just sorry about it anymore. You will. You're making a change and moving towards God. And that's what he, he comes to himself, his senses, so to speak. Here it is. He wakes He knows he was wrong. This kind of sorrow leads to repentance, meaning change and go the other way. Not just feeling sorry. He does that. He wakes. And then he says, oh man, the goodness of the Lord. You know this in Romans 2. The kindness of the Lord leads to repentance. Man, the Lord, my father, what, what am I doing? I'm here in the pig pen. I could be in the, my father's house. This is crazy. Why am I doing this? So he has that happen. And then He goes, I will go to my father. I will say to him. There's this repentance and then there's this honesty. There's this confession of honesty. Not saying, oh, you know, uh, I know I was angry, but, you know, I'm Irish and I'm always angry because I'm Irish. That's what people say. They make excuses. No, just say, "I'm, I'm angry and it's wrong. There is some good anger, but you know what I'm saying. Don't call sin, sin. And he does. I've sinned against heaven and before you. He's honest. God wants you to confess your sins. Not excuse your sins, not justify your sins. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You see humility. God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. That's repentance. Here's the picture of repentance. By the way, parents, do you see when... They, you've left it to its natural course and this child has failed and they hit their head against the wall trying to figure out how to do it and to go this way. Do you see when you know they've made it? They no longer say, gimme, 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 gimme. They say, how can I serve? Where can I be in my father's house and where can I serve? That's this. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off. Can you imagine as you're walking back into human terms, as you're walking back, man, oh man, this is going to be heavy. I got to go there and I got to just say it all out and I got to tell her how bad I've been doing and all this sort of thing. And you're doing it and you're still a great way off. You're still a great way off and your father sees you and has compassion and runs and falls on his neck and kisses him. And the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, bring out the best robe. What? You might be saying, what? I was in the mud. I spent all the money. Bring the best robe. I spent all the money. Oh, bring the ring. Bring the sandals. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. You see what was most important to the father? The best interest of the kid. And the best interest of the kid is that they're linked and welcome in the father's house, even if it causes painful circumstances on the way. Oh, by the way, kids, I ain't picking on you. We all need this too. 
What's the best way for your son, your daughter to come back to the Lord as you leave them to the circumstances of the things that they're doing? Well, you are in the Father's house, and you love the Lord, and it's just reeking out of you. It's just flowing out of you. Here he says, I've sinned against heaven at the Father. Now, here's something very interesting. You know, in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, if you lost <laughs> somebody's property, guess what the penalty was? Don't, don't phase out here. This is the beauty of the Lord right here. Guess what the penalty was? Yeah, easy penalty. Basically, you were stoned to death. So, of course, the father was happy. He wanted the son. But have you ever considered this? That guy, my son, has a penalty, and I'm going to go cover him. I'll go take, I'm going to cover him, I'll, I'll give him a hug, I'll, I'll kiss and, get, and we'll be close. And if anything's coming to him, I'll take it for him. It's a picture of redemption. It's a picture of what Jesus has done. God has done through Jesus. Well, he goes and falls on his neck and kisses him. I've sinned, he admits it. And the father says to him, bring out the best robes. Why robes? Because all of us have to be clothed in the righteousness of, of God. That's Romans 61.10, 2 Corinthians 5.21. You need the robes of righteousness in the father's house. In order to go to the father's house, you need the right robe. Thank goodness we don't earn it. He gives it to us. He takes our sins and makes them white as snow. And he brings out, he has a party, and he brings a ring, which is authority, and he has sandals on their feet. A lot of people didn't have shoes. Man, the gospel of peace is right there on my feet, and the fatted calf, we're partying here, and this is my son. I'm not concerned about what happened, the past. I'm concerned that he's back. This is such a fulfillment of Psalm 103. You want to read it with me? Turn over there. You'll be blessed. Psalm 103, start at verse 10. Look at this. If this doesn't make you happy, nothing will. You, you need to know this, folks. I need to know this. Psalm 103, praise for the Lord's mercy, a psalm of David. Verse 10, is this freeing or what? He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. If we did, we'd be toast, folks. That's not in the psalm. That's my commentary. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Prodigal son. That's the story, but it doesn't end there. And they begin to be merry. They're merry. Being found is rejoiceful. Rejoicing. You rejoiceful. Is that a word? Anyway, there's one other person that kind of sticks out here, and here's when the Lord turns his eyes to the religious people. Here it comes. They're probably saying, why are you telling us this story? We know, but we're great. That's what the Pharisees and the self-righteous, he says this, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But now he was angry and would not go in. Notice that, he wouldn't go in the house. He's stubborn, he has pride, therefore he's angry, therefore his father came out and pleaded with him, look, look. The father came out to him too. He didn't get shortchanged. And he answered to his father and said, These many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, isn't that funny? Not my brother, this son of yours, came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. Think about that. He was involved with harlots. You killed the fatted calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And that's the end of the story. Now, listen, you're going, well, why did Jesus say that? He just lets that hang out there to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious old brothers who are angry when sinners come to be found. 
He just leaves it out there. He doesn't resolve it for them. He wants them to ruminate, think on it, let it marinate a little bit. But I want you to see something else, maybe something you've never seen before. Boy, this is tough. You notice that the older brother was nice to one of three people. (laughs) He was nice to the person who wasn't related to him. He spoke civilly to the servant. But to his father, he spoke in pointed, in a pointed way, very confrontational way, and he wouldn't even talk to the brother. You see, self-righteousness is like that, man. I looked down the road and I've been serving here. You, you know what I think the older brother was doing? He was serving without delight and joy. By the way, if you're serving here without delight and joy... Come talk. Let's, let's talk. You ought to be serving with delight and joy because you're not serving for necessarily all of us, although you are. You're serving the Lord. And it was a duty to him. He was doing it, but he was saying it. I'm doing this, and you're going to owe me for this, Dad. And when the father didn't act the way he wanted him to act, he blew up. He was nice to the servant, but he said, Dad, in angry tones, I'm not going into your house. Can you imagine how sad that is? If, if that's the way your economy is, is that the way you're going to treat or act towards sinners and not towards us righteous people? I don't want any part of it. That's what he's saying. So sad. I didn't, I've kept all your commandments. You never gave me a young goat. But look, son, you're always with me, and I don't know if you caught this. All that I have is yours. You already have the stuff. We could have been having a party every day for all these years. A young, young lad was gone. But you were so caught up in others and comparing and discontent that it destroyed you and it was toxic to you. You could have enjoyed my presence always. Everything I have is yours. Don't be jealous. Oh, you know what can wreck a Christian's life? It's comparing yourselves with others. You know the Lord has a story for you, and he has a story for me, and he has a story for her and him. It's different than my story. So if you look down the road and you say, well, why is that gal doing this? Or why is that guy? Why do they have? Listen, it's a dangerous place to tread. It's older brother stuff. It's self-righteous stuff, and it'll rob you of your delight and joy almost immediately if you sit there. So what do we do as we end up this? (laughs) Well, here's what we do. Uh, Do you know you should know this? Or do you know you should know this? But you should know this about this chapter. David Gudzik tells us this, and this is so true. Many rabbis of that time, as we've described here, believed that God received the sinner who came to him the right way. But see, the parable of the shepherd and the sheep teaches, and and the prodigal son teaches that, listen, listen, God actively seeks out those who are lost. He doesn't grudgingly receive the lost. Instead, he searches after them. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Because the great Jewish scholars admit and taught that this is absolutely one new thing about Jesus' story that wasn't true before. What Jesus taught about God that they didn't teach. Catch what I'm saying? And this is it. That he actually searched for men and women. (laughs) Do you, you get now as we close, if you've never Run to the Father. Come back to the Father. He's been pursuing you. I mean, if you don't know that you have been found, that means you're lost. And you say, well, I don't know if he's ever pursued me. Well, guess what, folks? He just did today. And today, the day of salvation, you and I and we must come to the Father. Does he do the calling? Yes, Do we respond to that call? Yes. 
Is it God's sovereignty or man's responsibility to get saved? Well, this chapter seems to say it's both, and they don't have any problem with it. God searches for the sinner, and the sinner turns and gives his will over to the Father. What should you do? You should surrender your life to Christ. What if you're in a backslidden state? Well, come back. Don't live in this pig slop. Do yourself a favor today. Go into Ephesians 1 and see and put your name in there instead of we and us and them and put your name in there and see all the things that Christ has done for you or God has done through Christ. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You can get no richer, folks. You, you can't get any richer. You have all the graces available to you. But by the way, as we close, what's the difference between love and grace? You have all the grace. What's the difference between love and grace? Grace is just love in action. It's God's grace that saves through faith. Love in action. He died for you. He died for me. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come and we just, uh, as we have the musicians come, we're just praying, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. Lord, that we would feel secure and safe and accepted and worth, have worth and value in you because you did seek us out. You did seek us out, Lord. And may that be a stabilizing force in our hearts as we go out this week into the highways and byways of life, living out our Christianity, having your life shine through, and sharing the gospel with many. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.